invite if you would to take a Bible and turn to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 349. I just happened to look up and I saw, I said, well, that's Paul playing the organ. Paul, we're so glad to have you. It's always nice when you can come back and, and fill in and help us out. Good to see you. Um, also, just say a word of uh, thanks to Mark um, for preaching and leading the sermon last week uh, while I was away with the students at the uh, Student Ministry Beach Retreat. It was funny, I uh, bumped into a couple people this morning and they said, how was your vacation? And I said, well, you know, kind of, kind of a vacation. Um, but it was great to be with the students and to be reminded of the important work that Ethan and Joel do. Um, in that area, and um, just encourage you to be praying for our students, for those who, who lead and work with them. Um, it's, it's not the easiest time in the world to be a teenager and to seek to grow up and be a faithful follower of Christ, and so be, be in prayer for um, our student ministry staff. And then lastly, I think I see Ed Wells back there. When we commissioned Ed earlier this summer to go and do an internship with Smoke Rise Baptist Church. In, uh, in Georgia, and uh, so Ed, glad to have you back. We look forward to hearing more about your experience and what the Lord showed you while you were gone. Nehemiah chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 16. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not op- obey your commandments. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Therefore, you do not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, This is your God, who brought you up out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. By day, the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night, to shine on the way that they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, I don't know if your house is like this, but in the Splon house, we have one television inside. We do have one outside that hopefully I'm going to replace soon because the color's starting to go crazy on it, and we all know football season's coming. Anyway, we have one TV inside, so that means there's a lot of, um, let's say, strong conversations about what it is that we want to watch on that television. And um, the girls in our house probably are right that there's always some big game that Webb and I want to watch, and every season it never really stops. There's always something that we want to watch. But if May gets control of the TV, it's usually going to be a home, um, a cooking show or a home improvement show. And, And I've watched a lot of home improvement shows over the course of my life in the last few years. And there's one in particular, there's this mother daughter combination they're in the Indianapolis area that, that does these home improvements. And the thing that strikes me about this, these two ladies in particular is that they tend to find 
like really terrible looking houses. I mean, houses where you walk in and you think, ugh. Like people have been living in there that they shouldn't have been for a long time. And there's lots of stuff in there. And you can almost smell it just through the television, right? You're like, ugh. And they go in and they take these houses and, you know, with a little bit of magic, a little TV magic, enough people working behind the scenes. By the time it's over, it's this beautiful house and you're like, wow. But it's, it's true that, that usually the case that house didn't become like that overnight, did it? The house didn't go from being this beautiful house where people once lived to being this house that, that probably should be condemned and, and all but knocked down and rebuilt. It, it happened over time. It happened a little bit here and there, and then you look up one day and you think, whoa, what in the world happened to this house? If you don't maintain it, if you don't work on it, if you don't pay attention to it, over time, eventually, it goes downhill. And i got to tell you, when I picked this passage for this sermon today, I picked it, Kelly, how, how long ago do you think I picked this sermon passage? Yeah, months ago. And I picked it primarily because it was a lectionary passage for today. And we're in between sermon series, we're in between Proverbs, next week we're starting parables of Jesus, and so I, I picked this passage out of the ones that were there in the lectionary. And as I've been working on it for this, this Sunday, um, it seems to me that just God in his providence gave us this passage for today, for this significant time um, in the life of our church. Ezra Nehemiah um, at one point, were one volume. These books uh, go together. And they tell the story of God reestablishing his people in Jerusalem after they've returned from exile. And you might remember that story that, that Ezra goes back, the priest, and then eventually Nehemiah, he's really burdened about the condition of God's people in Jerusalem, that the walls are broken down, that things are in disrepair. And his countenance before the king is so sad. Have you been around people before who were just walking through a difficult time and it's just all over their face? That was Nehemiah. He was in a, a bad way, thinking about his people back in Jerusalem. And the king asked him, why, why are you so sad? And he says, the wall of Jerusalem, Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. There was this burden that he had to go back and be a part of rebuilding the wall, rebuilding the temple. And, and I would say, as I've read this passage and thought about it, that, that even as important as the temple, as important as the wall being rebuilt, there's this, this spiritual renewal, this rebuilding um, project that needed to happen in the people's hearts. Now just imagine if you were the people who got left behind in Jerusalem. Um, your faith and your practice of your faith was not what it once was. Again, no temple, no Levites to lead worship. All the things that were so important for you and your practice of faith had gone. And then a large portion of the people had been taken away into captivity or exile. And so think about it. I, probably the closest we can get is... 
um, the pandemic. Any of you shudder when you hear that word? I kind of just shudder when I hear that word. For the things that you and I took for granted that fostered faith, that fostered community, these kind of big milestones of life and faith that they relate to church, we couldn't do those things for a long time, correct? We were kind of off by ourselves more than we would have wanted to be. So I think if you take that and multiply it exponentially, you get the sense of kind of disrepair and dismay that the people of God felt during this time. And so God providentially provides for Ezra a copy of the law. And there's this beautiful scene of Ezra getting up to read from the law. And you know what all the people did when he did that? They just fell on their faces. Imagine if you hadn't heard the Bible read, let's just say, for 40 years. And then somebody stands up and they read the Bible to you. There was this this longing for, for knowing the Lord, this longing for renewal, and all of this stuff is happening here. And Nehemiah here in chapter 9, he rehearses and he recounts God's work of redemption over past generations, and he does it in part to give the people a sense of confidence during the days that they were living when things were hard. So as he's kind of getting everybody back together, as they're kind of thinking, all right, we're renewing our commitment to the Lord and to each other, and things look really, really bad around us right now. And I want to remind you that that it's God's character and his character on display and the saving works that he um, accomplished on behalf of his people that gives us hope and confidence for the living of these days. If you look back in Nehemiah chapter 9, he starts this rehearsal in verse 6. And he says, the Lord is the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. So the same God who created everything was still present in Jerusalem at this time when so much was still in rubble. That God is the creator of heaven and earth. Does that sound familiar to you? Right? We remind ourselves of these truths. And then he starts getting into the specific aspects of God's character that that he showed in saving and calling out his people. He starts with Abraham. He said, you you called Abraham to go out to the land that that you would show him, made a covenant with him and his offspring. Then he fast forwards to slavery in Egypt. He says, you heard the afflictions and the cries of your people in Egypt. You performed these mighty works to lead them out. Then they get out and they're trapped between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. Talk about a pretty dire situation. To go forward, they thought, was to drown. To go back, they thought, was to be killed. And in that moment, even even though they lacked faith that God could and would provide for them, God does it and he splits the Red Sea. And they get out in the wilderness and... He leads them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He gave them his law. And I love the way that he describes his law in verse 13. He says, you gave them their right rules, true laws, good statutes and commandments. He holds up the beauty and the usefulness of God's word to give it to God's people. He told them about the Sabbath, provided manna for them in the wilderness, At every point along the way, God shows his grace and his mercy and his kindness 
to his people. And saving them and sustaining them. And how did they respond? How did they respond to all that God had done for them? We would like to say, and they responded with hearts of obedience and gratitude, wouldn't we? After all that God had done for them, that they, that they responded with faithful living. Verse 16, this is how they responded. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and did not obey your commandments. One of the things I love about the Bible is the vivid language that we get. Have you ever been around someone that, that stiffened their neck and they were just hard-headed? You ever been that person? Maybe. And they rebelled and they pushed against God's leadership in their lives, even though he had done all these things for them. They refused to obey. They were not mindful of the wonders that he performed for them. Again, they stiffened their neck. They appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Imagine that. They're like, hey, this life of faith is not, it's not what we thought it would be. It seems kind of hard. Let's find somebody just to lead us back to slavery in Egypt. Wouldn't that be better? And how would you think you would respond if you were the Lord? Have you ever responded to those obstinate people in your life with less than love and kindness? I'm glad that we don't hear a huge amen from any spawn children in the room. Right? Amen, preacher. Right? But that's not how God responds. It's not how God responds to his people. And, and why doesn't he? But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And did not forsake them. Even when they made these golden calves to worship as idols that had led them out of Egypt. Even when they did that, God continued in his faithfulness and his kindness and his mercy to pursue them. And this message that Nehemiah holds out here in this chapter is an important one. And the context is important because... If the people were to get what they deserved in this moment, they didn't deserve to have the temple rebuilt. They didn't deserve to have the walls erected again. They didn't deserve to have God's law and all the things that facilitated their faith. They didn't deserve to have any of that. But Nehemiah in that context says, the reason that you and I can have hope in this moment the reason you and I can be confident moving forward into the days ahead that God will preserve and God will provide for his people is rooted in the very character of God. This is just who he is. This is just how God acts. And it's not because we deserve it. It's not because we've earned it. But it's because he stays faithful to his covenant commitments even when we are unfaithful to him. This past week, um, I read two articles that were not exactly um, encouraging for a pastor. I read two articles that weren't exactly like, hey, everything in culture is on your side. Church is going to be fine. 
In fact, they were, they were quite the opposite. Um, one was in the Wall Street Journal, and one was in a magazine called The Atlantic. And it's the one in The Atlantic that has some language that kind of stood out to me and, and gave me um, words, perhaps, to express the feelings that I've felt for some time in, in words that I couldn't find for myself. Has that happened to you before? You read something and you're like, that's it. It's by a guy named Jake Medor, and he's writing about this phenomenon that's happening in our country where people are, um, the term that they use, de-churching. De-churching. And some of the people who are de-churching are not necessarily, they're not really mad. They haven't really been hurt by the church. There's no great scandal that occurred. But it was more kind of just this gradual drift out into places where they weren't connected to the life of the church. He writes, um, he writes this. The book suggests, he's talking about a book titled Dechurching. The defining problem driving out most people who leave is just how American life works in the 21st century. Contemporary America simply isn't set up to promote mutuality, care, or common life. Rather, it's designed to maximize individual accomplishment as defined by professional and financial success. Such a system leaves precious little time or energy for forms of community that don't contribute to one's own professional life or as one ages, the professional prospects of one's children. He says, workism reigns in America, and because of it, community in America, religious community included, is a math problem that doesn't add up. I, I, I think he's spot on. I think he's spot on. And I can just tell you from having conversations with ministers on staff or, or watching them plan their ministry calendars or them trying to, to do ministry in a way that engages and connects with people, that probably one of the greatest frustrations is that, that idea that contemporary American life just isn't set up really to foster community. That you and I are as mobile as we've ever been we can connect virtually in some ways and feel like we're still getting out of our involvement in church or other organizations. We still get something out of that. But here's the thing that I've convinced of is that, that church, church only really works when there's a group of people who are sincere in their relationship with the Lord, and they're asking the hard questions of how is it that my faith ought to impact the lives of others who are around me? And if you only ask the question, and, and I've done it myself, trust me, I've done it myself. If you only ask the question, what is required? Do I have to do this or do I have to do that? Just let me tell you, you're not going to get to an expression of Christianity that is life-giving for others in the community 
and it fulfills this calling that God's given us, which I think we ought to take very seriously to be the church in Mountain Brook here at Montevallo and Overbrook Road. Because you could say, Wayne, did I have to come to church today? What would my response be to you? No. Did God love me more because I showed up? No, he does not. If you slept in today and were generally a terrible person to everybody in your household, God's love for you is constant. It's the good news of the grace of the gospel. But you and I live into this life of faithfulness that God's given us to pursue Christ individually and corporately and to reach out to the community beyond us out of this desire that's, that's far greater than legalism or do I have to do this or is this required? Do I have to give? Do I have to serve? Do I have to do fill in the blank? But God, God calls us to higher and better than do I have to. I can't tell you about how many conversations, not on this last beach retreat, so I'm not indicting any current students. You know, Mary and I used to work with students. And students are, are often thinking, do I have to? Or the corollary question is, can I? Is this allowed? What about this? What about that? And as long as you're having the conversation about pursuing a life of faithfulness based on on those categories, do I have to? Is it required? Can I? Then it's going to be really, really hard to be a faithful, dynamic, spirit-led church. It just is. It's going to be very hard. Reading that article just reminded me um, that you and I should not assume that Mount Brook Baptist Church will always be here. We should not assume that we're always going to be here as a church. Without calling names, I could lead you to churches within the city limits, couldn't I, that are no longer churches? They're buildings, but not churches anymore. And so as we enter into this season of, of what I hope will be a season of renewal for us, it's important that you and I take seriously what it means for us to be growing in our faith with Christ individually. It's important for us to take seriously what it looks like for us to be committed to others I think I might have mentioned to you when I was home in South Carolina over July 4th, I had the opportunity to go to my home church. And I got to go to my brother-in-law's Sunday school class. And the only reason that's uncomfortable is that you, you feel like you're going to get like, uh, let's stump the preacher questions, right? But they were talking about mentorship and leadership and service. And one of the questions that came up that I thought was so profound and so good is that As you measure your spiritual life, 
as you measure your maturity, one of the questions that you can ask is, how many people's lives am I investing in? How many people's lives am I giving, um, stewarding my time, talents, and treasures to help them grow in faith? And count that list, and that's a, at least one indicator of your spiritual health. How much you're giving, not to get for yourself, but to build other people up. And then, of course, we're going to be talking um, a lot in the month of August and the rest of the fall about, about our building. And I'm so hopeful that our conversation as a group and our prayer and our thinking about how we're going to support it flows more and more from a sense of responsibility to how we steward what we've been entrusted with in this property, in these facilities to accomplish God's mission in the world. If we have a conversation about the building and it becomes more of what do I like and what do you like? And I like this and you don't like that and you know. Then it devolves really quickly if it's divorced from the mission that God's given us here in this place. And here's the thing, people who are disconnected from church and people who are around us, it's not it's not necessarily the case that life's really working out for them apart from their faith in Christ. The amount of people who their marriages are not doing well, the amount of people who struggle with depression and anxiety, the amount of people that Mount Brook Junior High right across the street, And you and I have this really incredible opportunity and privilege to be people of God and to hold out the hope of the gospel right here. And so I'm inviting you to, to be prayerful about this time in the life of our church. That, that each of us would be renewed in our commitment and our faith with Jesus personally. That you and I, each of us, would have a renewed sense of commitment to the other people that God's called to be members here at Mountain Root Baptist Church. He would give us an extraordinary sense of service and an extraordinary sense of calling. Think about not just our faith, but others. And that God would give us a supernatural sense of unity as we seek to be prayerful about what, how God would have us use these facilities to reach people for Christ. To reach people for Christ. And my greatest hope is not in you all being great people. I do think that many of you are great people. Don't get me wrong. But given all the obstacles and all the challenges and the cultural milieu that you and I move about in, it's not about us being smart enough. It's not about us being strategic enough. It's not about us using all that we have enough. But ultimately, our hope is in God's character. That God has been faithful to his church 
in ages past. He will be faithful to his church in ages to come. And you and I walk into the future with a renewed sense of commitment to Christ and to his church and to our mission in this world. I pray um, that God would do that great work. I invite you to pray with me. God, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for all that you've done for us in Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be a faithful church in these days. Lord, we look back and we are we're so grateful for the people who came before us, many of whom gave and served and provided leadership in ways that are astounding to us. And we pray that for each of us here, Lord, that you would that you would give us a renewed sense of vibrancy in our relationship with you, a renewed sense of how it is that the practice of our faith and our discipleship ought to be used to build up and encourage and to serve others here in this congregation. And Lord, that you would give us a greater and a growing burden for the people who live here in Mountain Brook and other surrounding communities over the mountain in the greater Birmingham area in our country and even to the ends of the earth, Lord, that we would be, would be faithful to the mission that you've called us to in these days. We love you and we thank you for your love for us and we offer this prayer in Christ's name. Amen.